Hi, everybody. Welcome to Drishti Talk. Uh, we're going to be talking today about India's nuclear program with Bhushan Shah. It is Wednesday, September 5th. I want to start with a little bit of follow-up first. On episode 106, we were talking about India and China and various factors affecting the rather complicated relationship they share. Uh, we specifically focused on the Doklam standoff. And so by way of update, on the 28th of August, the Doklam standoff came to an end. Both governments announced that they were withdrawing from the positions of the standoff and restoring a status quo. India has, as a result, uh, stood down its her troops, uh, while China has thereafter removed construction equipment and its claim at the moment to construct any roads in the Bhutanese disputed territory. On the date which you mentioned, the Indian Ministry of External Affairs just issued a two-point statement on this that an agreement has been reached. Both the sides have agreed to withdraw the troops. But see the funny thing, even though China has agreed to withdraw its troops, the Chinese media still continues to spread misinformation that it is India who has first unilaterally withdrawn its troops leading to an end to the standoff. So it's like the, the Chinese media and the Chinese government have still not learned their lesson, it seems. We were listening to a lot of this come out from Chinese media. We've seen some of it even quoted in, in Indian media over the last week or so. But you also listen to a lot of Indian defense experts and they're pretty, you know, they're pretty unanimous in, in, in how they feel about the art. But I think if we look at it purely from a factual standpoint, China's goal in this situation was to construct road in this territory. And the fact that they are now not doing so, not only that, but they, you know, post the statement that you mentioned that came out from the MEA and the relevant statement that came out from China thereafter, uh, a subsequent update came out, I think it was uh, sometime in the evening of the same day, uh, where India confirmed that China has withdrawn its construction troops and then there was a further update about it. So I think at the end of the day, the fact that China is not constructing road uh, in this territory pretty much signaled, uh, you know, the stand. It was really that unilateral. Uh, then India standing, you know, its troops down would have implied China would have just gone ahead and done it immediately, right? Yeah, and another point to be noted is that throughout the standoff, China always held that for any talks to progress, India has to unilaterally withdraw its troops first. But now the agreement that has been reached just says that in spite of China saying that talks will not take place unless in India withdraws its troops, the talks were actually going on. So you can see the huge difference between what Chinese media and the Chinese government says versus what is actual ground reality. And yeah, another thing is the effect of the, the after effects of the Doklam standoff seem to be continuing in the BRICS 2017 summit which is being held in Xiamen, China. It is simply unbelievable that China has allowed the names of Pakistan-based terrorist groups to enter the Xiamen declaration. Uh, yeah, it is It is very interesting. The fact that this agreement was reached uh, roughly a week before um, you know, the summit was about to begin. Uh, considering that the, you know, the standoff had been going on, I think it was 70 plus days, or 78 if I'm right or something. So, uh, the, you know, the fact that a week before the BRICS summit was about to be held, uh, you know, this understanding was finally reached, uh, status quo was was restored. You know, construction is not going to happen and India is very happy to to stand down if, if there's not going to be any uh, wrongdoing. Uh, following which, if you look at how the BRICS has been playing out, obviously the five countries involved 
um, you know, had productive meetings. But as you mentioned, the declaration where uh, China is a signatory to some of the concerns India has, especially with regards to terror, where China has so far been taking either a neutral or a, or an opposing vote. And then you have to look at the fact that India and China had a bilateral meeting where numerous items were discussed, but uh, it does look as though not only is China understanding the position that that India is putting down, uh, but is also amenable to to agreeing with India on other items. Uh, the foreign, uh, you know, the foreign secretary statement uh, after the bilateral was that the Doklam issue wasn't even, you know, wasn't really on the table. It was not discussed in depth, uh, implying that you know, it's both countries are looking at it as saying, okay, look, we've had that issue. Let's put it aside. Let's move on to other things that we need to discuss. We've seen a lot of the commentary around these issues that you know, you we can't trust that they'll they won't do this again. Maybe they'll try somewhere else. All of which is fine, uh, but. But I think it's important to understand or it looks like China is at least understanding that it's not going to be just a, a cakewalk and whether it's um, militarily, whether it's you know diplomacy, whether it's uh, things like BRICS where India is really driving a lot of the agenda. Yeah, now the change in India-China relations will be visible for a long time to come, I think. China will no longer consider India as a country which can be easily bullied, but rather view it with some sort of respect. Uh, for for anybody that is really interested in in understanding more about the after effects, um, especially now that the standoff is done and 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 we've had the BRICS summit, I'll link in the show notes to a show on Doordarshan that that comes up every week, uh, where security experts discuss different matters, and obviously they've been talking about China. Uh, I think it's it's worthwhile uh, listening to that. Yeah, as always, I want to take a minute to thank our listeners uh, for all the valuable feedback we keep getting. Uh, topic suggestions, guest suggestions. Um, you know, as always, uh, you can reach us on both Twitter and Facebook at Ekdrishti. Um, and all our episodes, the show notes, comments, and so on uh, can be accessed at the podcast webpage talk.ekdrishti.in. Okay, we're going to jump into our main topic. And we want to discuss today a little bit about the nuclear program in India. Uh, let's put some let's put some context as always. In 2014, India's nuclear capacity was about 4,700 megawatts. Uh, this has gone up by about two gigawatts. So we are now at 6,780 uh, as of 2017, uh, with 22 uh, nuclear generation plants. Uh, what is a painful statistic here, though, is that the father of India's nuclear program, Homi Baba, who was a fantastic nuclear scientist. Uh, he had predicted and planned uh, that India's nuclear capacity would be 8,000 megawatts by 1980. Um, and all we've been able to get at is we, we have reached maybe about 80% of the capacity and it's 2017. Currently under construction are 6,700 megawatts worth of uh, nuclear generation plants, uh, which are all expected to be completed somewhere around uh, 2022. Additionally, about 7,000 megawatt capacity has been approved uh, this year for construction down the road. You know, we, we were projecting ourselves at 8,000 in 1918. We're not even at that capacity now in 2017. Even now in around 2012 or 2013, maybe somewhere around that time, the target was revised at 20,000 megawatts up to the year 2020. However, at the speed at which we are currently going, we may be able to achieve only and only around 50% of the target. And um, not, not just that, but if you look at percentage share, so today India generates up just a little over 3% um, of its electricity targets uh, from nuclear. 
uh, and we're looking at generating, you know, trying to touch 20, 25%, but by the year 2050, while it may be a little unfair uh, to compare it with, you know, the, the highest rated ones, but you look at a country like France, for example, which is generating 75% of its electricity needs, um, you know, from nuclear. So there's, there's a huge gap, not necessarily that we'll, we'll ever be at 70 or 75%. We're we're so far behind. I mean, we're in single digits today. The Indian government's strategy towards uh, nuclear power, I think the closest document we have at the moment, it's a draft energy policy by the Niti Aayog that was up for public comment until the end of July. There is a dedicated uh, nuclear energy section. Uh, but again, and this is where some of these numbers are, are listed. You know, since you mentioned France, in France, currently the population is at around 8 crore people. So France has got... 660 nuclear reactors for a population of 8 crores. Now, comparatively, I have some interesting statistics on India. Currently, an average Indian uses 917 kilowatts of electricity annually, which is definitely far less than the statistics of the developed countries. But if you assume that India will grow at 7% for the next coming years continuously, which is very much likely, then by the year 2060, it is said that the electricity consumption of an average Indian may go to 5,300 kilowatts. And hence, India, which currently generates approximately 284 gigawatts of electricity, may need to generate 1,400 gigawatts of electricity in the year 2060. Currently, this is definitely not possible without nuclear power because coal has got its limitations, even hydroelectricity has got its limitations. So India will have to expand its nuclear power if it has to, if it has to have an energy secure future. And you mentioned coal and, and hydro, and, and I, I'll include solar in there because uh, solar energy is one of the technologies that the that India is really pushing heavily today as as one of the renewal and you know renewal forms. And there are constant rumblings, uh, you know, during the course of this year, that uh, India is probably going to ramp down both its production of coal as well as setting up of more mining. Uh, in wake of solar energy replacing some of these needs. Before we get into some of the technicalities, uh, for those who are really interested uh, to learn about the science behind uh, nuclear power, nuclear generation, uh, very specifics, including you know uranium reactors versus thorium reactors and so on, and, and a lot about like the Indian way of, of harnessing nuclear power and so on, I will point you out to uh, Kushal Mehra's podcast, done with J.D. Prabhu, who is an expert on nuclear energy. I'm going to link that in the show notes. And I really recommend it's about an hour long, uh, you know, breakdown of some of the, the real technicalities around nuclear power, if you're interested. So let's, I want to focus a little bit now on, on, on thorium, whatever we're talking about in terms of uh, current nuclear generation, as well as the upcoming capacity. These are all, um, you know, the pressurized heavy water reactors that are, that are uh, powered by uranium. See, now the problem with uranium is that India has got less than 1% of the world's uranium deposits. So, if you are to continue with uranium reactors, India has to depend on other countries for energy, and which I think would not be good for us. You know how other countries are very peculiar, I means very particular when it comes to nuclear fuel. And so this is one of the reasons, and we'll come to that in a few minutes, uh, about why India is currently making active you know, is, is working really hard with certain countries to try and, and ramp up our ability to get uranium. Uh, because as you mentioned, it's it's something that we do not have a lot of. And comparatively, 
is India is estimated to have the world's second higher of the world's total thorium reserves. Though. It is 32%. Why is it that despite having so much of this as a natural resource, uh, that we're still so heavily focused on uranium, so much so that earlier this year, uh, you know, we've actually approved the construction of 10 more uh, reactors, you know, 10 more uranium reactors as opposed to anything thorium-wise. And, and the reason I bring up thorium as well is because thorium breeder reactors were an integral part of Homi Baba's original in, you know, nuclear program. There were three stages in it, and thorium was one of the three stages. And he envisioned uh, India reaching you know, nuclear power maturity enough that we would reach the stage of, of using thorium breeder reactors. Yeah, see, let me point out a few advantages which thorium has got over uranium. Like you, first one which you already mentioned is that India already has 32% of the world's thorium resource. So we do not need to depend on other countries. We are next only to Australia. See, thorium reactors are cheaper than the conventional uranium reactors. And one reason behind that is that for uranium, you have to separate the isotopes of uranium. Not all the isotopes of uranium are useful as nuclear fuel. But when it comes to thorium, you do not have to separate the, the isotopes of thorium. This makes it cheaper. Secondly, thorium reactors are much more safer. Now, Nobel laureate Carlo Rubia approximates that a ton of thorium could produce as much energy as 200 tons of uranium or 4 million tons of coal. Consequently, far less nuclear waste is generated. More importantly, no isotopes with the half-life of beyond 35 years are present in the waste field from thorium reactors, which reduces storage time considerably. Now, an interesting point with regard to thorium is that the current ruling political party of India, the Bhatia Janta Party, had specifically mentioned in its 2014 election manifesto that it would encourage the development of thorium as a fuel for nuclear reactors in India. Yeah, I think that's that's... Very interesting because, as you mentioned, I mean, it was specifically called out. And so, and yet, I mean, at, at least from what I can tell as, as of now, it doesn't look like any advancements have been made. And if they are, they're, you know, as, as we mentioned, really quiet. Also, if you look at the energy policy, we are talk, we are, we're literally talking about, uh, you know, reaching a point of actual advancement far too many years from now. So I don't know if this is because this has just begun and therefore between all of the amount of work that has to go into everything from construction to building to testing to disposal of waste and and you know making sure that the whole chain of the process um, is intact but recent estimates including the the energy policy indicate that we'll only realistically be able to look at thorium as a as a fundamental source um, maybe as late as 2050 see we all might be remembering that in july 2005 there was a nuclear accord with the united states a month after the accord with the US, on August 25, 2005, at a week-long international conference, the scientists of the Baba Atomic Research Center, more famously known as the BARC, I would like to name the scientists, V. Jagannathan and Ushapal, stated that the BARC had designed the world's safest nuclear reactor after some seven years of effort. So it may have started in 1998 and continued up to 2005. The scientists unveiled a path-breaking design for a thorium breeder reactor, abbreviated as ATBR. 
that can produce 600 megawatts of electricity for two years with absolutely no refueling and practically no control maneuvers. So you can imagine how cost effective the thorium reactors can be. What this did is that it extended the core life two full years. This, this is greater than any other nuclear power reactors. The ATBR ran entirely on thorium except for the seed plutonium in the prototype to kickstart things. Thorium is, as, a, as we have already discussed, thorium is plentiful in India. But what we have done since 2005 to exploit this is unfortunately absolutely nothing. In the past 10 years since the India-US India nuclear deal has been running, going on, US has not, not helped us manufacture even a single nuclear reactor. The only country which has helped us manufacture nuclear reactors in these 10 years is Russia, that too at Kundankulam. In that too, even Russia increased the price of the, the Kundankulam nuclear power plant. So the past 10 years, you can say they have been largely wasted, despite having a huge potential in the based nuclear reactors and another interesting fact is that in the 10 years of the UPA government thorium was not only illegally mined from Tamil Nadu but also exported illegally to other countries uh, yeah and and uh, well unfortunately there's literally been not much in terms of update since that uh, since the scam was put out so we don't really know um, where if anything any investigations might have led so we're talking about the last ten years and and uh, various things where we look at today the where we look at the numbers today and realize that India's nuclear abilities have not reached where they should have. It's it's almost not possible then to not also point out that over the last decade, going f as far back as 1995, India has lost numerous and I mean numerous nuclear scientists. Official numbers state that at least 71 nuclear scientists have committed suicide since 1995, and these are government numbers. Um, other estimates indicate that uh, over 1,700 deaths have occurred uh, in the last two decades. There's, there's really been no conclusion to a lot of the investigation. Some forensic experts indicate that various deaths are still unexplained, have not been ruled um, in, in any way, but they all have to do with scientists and engineers involved in the nuclear program. Who have been found dead in some cases without fingerprints and there are literally no clues as to why uh, that would help the police catch any of the culprit so what's going on here yeah i see lots of suspicious deaths of indian scientists have taken place it is something which started with the father of india's nuclear program that is homi jangir baba even his death was very much suspicious his, his plane had crashed on Europe's highest mountain, that is Mount Blanc. And I would like to talk about a few peculiar cases. The first case which I would talk about is a case of nuclear scientist Lokanathan Mahalingam. He was a scientist working at the Kaiga Atomic Power Station located in Karnataka. On 13 June 2009, his death was reported. He was not a very well-known scientist, but on 8th June 2009, he went to on a morning walk and never returned. Five days later, his decomposed body was found in the Kali River. As per reports, although police confirmed it as suicide, his family refused to believe the police theory. The security guards on duty are quoted as saying that they never saw him leaving the campus. Now another case is of the scientist Uma Narshima Rao. She was aged 63 and a retired scientist of the Baba Atomic Research Center. She committed suicide at her house at Govandi, which is near the Baba Atomic Research Center. 
Although the police suspect she was suffering from depression, the victim's colleagues said it did not seem so. Another case is that of Ravi Mule. He was an employee of the Nuclear Power Corporation India Limited. He went missing and was later declared murdered. His brother made his own efforts to investigate after police failed to make any headway. Another case is of that of M. Ayer. On February 23, 2010, M. Ayer, an engineer working with the Bapa Atomic Research Center, was found dead in his residence. Police investigations again did not conclude anything, with foreign experts declaring, as in all cases of unexplained deaths, that there were no fingerprints or clues that could help the police identify the culprits. So there are numerous such cases. If anyone wants to know about such cases, we can present a link of the website indiafacts.org, which has got the names of many such scientists whose deaths have been found to be mysterious in nature. All these mysterious deaths point out to professional, highly professional murder techniques which can only be done by professional intelligence agencies. But this is something, unfortunately, whose true complete truth we may never ever know because of the secrecy that is associated with nuclear programs. Yeah, and, and I want to point out here as well, I mean, obviously, we we don't really have by way of explanation an answer to that. Uh, but what is definitely uh, unnerving is that a lot of these deaths um, don't actually have anything to do with with what you would expect uh, to be the cause, such as radiation poisoning or, or any such thing. I mean, a lot of them have been labeled as suicides today, as you've mentioned, we've gone over. Uh, but then a lot of them have been deaths, but they're not, uh, you know, not, not natural ones. They died before their time. They're not... Uh, succumb to radiation poisoning and things like that so there's definitely something bizarre going on and while the official numbers by the government sometime earlier this year state that 71 nuclear scientists died attributed to suicide between 1995 and 2015 uh, and that there were only two officially declared as murderers um, it does still not answer the question that what about uh, you know, the remaining deaths and how they've been explained so far. Yeah, and the large number of such deaths taking place in the past decade and a half, I feel we can relate it to the fact that during this past decade, India's nuclear program could not develop to its potential. So this must definitely be linked to the deaths of our scientists because without our scientists, our nuclear program definitely cannot develop. Yeah, there's definitely no doubt there, right? Because there is a, a hindrance to what I would largely call knowledge transfer uh, when it comes to expanding something that requires uh, decades of research. Um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, when we talked about the thorium breeder reactor, uh, you know, just to build that prototype, it took them seven years. And such knowledge not being transferred is definitely a hindrance to, to any nuclear program. So finally, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, international cooperation and so today, India has agreements with 14 different countries relating to nuclear plants. Uh, as we've already, we've already covered a little bit about the, the U.S. agreement that was signed way back in 2005. Uh, but in the last three years, we've, we've really, uh, you know, we've really amped on this. Now, it's a common mentality that if you have something which others don't have, if you have something which makes you special, then you would definitely not like others to have that thing. The same thing, the same logic applies to nuclear weapons. By mid-1960s, uh, five countries of the world had officially developed nuclear weapons. They were US, UK, France, USSR and China. So these five countries definitely did not want other countries in the world to develop nuclear weapons. So what they invented is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Now this treaty was signed on 1st July 1968 
and it came it and it became effective on 5th march 1970 and as of now other than five countries that is india israel north korea south sudan and pakistan all the countries of the world have signed this now this nuclear non proliferation treaty it divides the countries of the world into two types nuclear weapon states and non nuclear weapon states now here is the discriminatory nature of the treaty the treaty defines nuclear weapon states as those that have built and tested a nuclear device before 1st january 1967 now these countries are as i already stated united states russia united kingdom france and china so if any country develops nuclear weapons after 1st january 1967 it would not be recognized as a nuclear weapon state so now india is a country which exploded a nuclear bomb in 1974 besides india pakistan north korea israel in other countries have exploded nuclear devices after 1st january 1967 so these countries despite possessing nuclear weapons are not recognized as a nuclear power so the central point of the nuclear non proliferation treaty is countries which are recognized by the npt as a non nuclear weapon states agree that they will never ever build nuclear build or acquire nuclear weapons the five nuclear weapon states can share the benefits of peaceful nuclear energy and also the five nuclear weapon states on their part have to pursue nuclear disarmament aimed at ultimate elimination of their nuclear arsenals but this part of disarmament has definitely not happened if you check india's stand on the non proliferation treaty india has always refused to sign the non proliferation treaty our two neighbors china and pakistan both have nuclear weapons now pakistan has outrightly not signed the non proliferation treaty on the contrary china is recognized as a nuclear power state so if china develops nuclear weapons there won't be any sorts of restrictions imposed on china by the npt countries so this is the reason why india cannot afford to sign the nuclear non proliferation treaty so uh, let's let's also understand uh what it means right so we we do i mean it is a discriminatory law and 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 that's one of the reasons why india has continued to oppose uh signing the npt but um what what would be the impact what what is what does india lose by not signing it so what happened after the non proliferation treaty is that in 1974 india blasted its nuclear weapons so the countries which had signed the npt felt that the npt is not very successful in stopping the proliferation that is stopping the spread of nuclear weapons so next what they did is they brought in the nsg nuclear suppliers group so now in the nuclear suppliers group currently there are 48 member countries now the conditions of the nuclear suppliers group are that a member of the nuclear suppliers group cannot do civil cannot do civil nuclear business that is business for building nuclear reactors and trading in nuclear fuel etc with the country that has not signed the non proliferation treaty secondly one of the members of the nuclear suppliers group refuses to do business with the non nsg country it would mean that all the other members of the nuclear suppliers group cannot do business so india currently is not a member of this group and most of the countries having uranium or having technology to build nuclear reactors are members of this group so which earlier meant that these countries are members of the nuclear suppliers group cannot do any business 
with India with respect to building nuclear reactors and supplying nuclear fuel to India. So this was a situation up till 2008. So whatever we developed up to from 19 from the 1950s till 2008 was largely indigenous. Now in 2008, now despite not signing the Non-Proliferation Treaty officially, India had added to all the terms and conditions of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. After the 1998 nuclear test, we did not conduct any nuclear test. Then we also segregated the nuclear energy for military and civilian use. So in 2008, the NSG agreed to grant India a waiver, which means that now the countries which are members of the NSG can do civil nuclear business with India. So after 2008, if you see, including United States, just like you already mentioned, 14 other countries have signed civil nuclear deals with India. So practically what we lose by not joining the NSG, that we cannot influence the future policies of the NSG directly. Means we will have to do it through our friends in the NSG, that is if at all they agree to us. And number two, NSG is a consensus group. All the 48 countries of the NSG have to accept China as objective to India joining NSG. If in future India manages to join the NSG and China agrees, then any new member which has to, which wants to apply to join the NSG has to get India's approval as well. So it cannot afford bad relations with India. For instance, if India is accepted in the NSG and Pakistan now wants to join the NSG next, so Pakistan will have to convince India as well. So this gives India a bit more power in international politics. Yeah, and um, and in, fa- in fact, one of the things we've seen over the last couple of years with uh, various bilateral and other um, you know international visits has been vocal support um, by a lot of the other countries that we, you know, that you've been talking about, except for China, um, for India's bid at the NSG. Uh, not just that, but as you mentioned, also that uh, you know, post 2008, because there was a waiver granted and there was this this possibility, uh, we've had numerous you know nuclear agreements signed. Uh, so we had, for example, the nuclear deal with Australia in 2014. India was Australia's first you know non NPT country that they entered into an agreement with. The first shipment of uranium is expected to have arrived in India in in July this year. Uh, similarly, I mean, again, we had Canada had stopped dealing with India uh, in the case of uh, you know nuclear fuel and other things. Again, they've committed now to providing India with 3,000 metric tons of uranium over the course of five years. And another example I just want to mention quickly is, is Japan, whom we signed an agreement with last year. Uh, Japanese is more on the technology side, so they're going to be helping us with building uh, some of the reactors that are underway over the next uh, decade. See, Japan signing a civil nuclear deal with us is a very big thing because there is a proverb in Hindi, Dood ka jala chhas bhi fuk fuk kar So Japan is that Dood ka jala when it comes to nuclear weapons. It is practically the only country in modern times to suffer a nuclear attack on its territory. So hence the nuclear issues are a hot political issue in the domestic politics of Japan as well. So despite that, if the Japanese Prime Minister has agreed to sign a nuclear deal with India, then he is definitely taking a political risk at home. This signifies the closeness of the India-Japan relationship. Yeah, and I think the India-Japan uh, relationship is something that's of unique importance, especially when we look at the uh, you know the Asian politics, uh, China, and everything else. 
so hopefully we'll we'll you know we'll try and uh, visit that soon. Okay. Uh, one final point I think uh, since we're talking about foreign contributions is that um, while the government has uh, updated uh, you know our the Atomic Energy Act from 1962, any JVs that are done for technical cooperation um, you know will always be done with you know with government of India control. Uh, and not through any other means. For example, you have uh, things like FDI, which is actually not permitted in nuclear technology, so you can't do any foreign direct investment. But it has to be done through joint ventures with the government of India. I think that's about it for this episode. Uh, you know, we wanted to touch on various aspects of India's nuclear program. I think a little look back uh, at you know at where we started back in the 1950s and where we are today in 2017, and we've not really come close to meeting. Uh, what was envisioned. Uh, that being said, uh, we've you know we've also heard about uh, some of the recent improvements, the recent agreements that have been signed in the last uh, couple of years, uh, and some of the targets that have been set you know down the road for us. Uh, if you look at the next decade, but also all the way up to uh, you know the goals that we have for 2050. Remember that India is uh, you know a country with growing electricity needs. Uh, the government is expected to target individual household electricity uh, somewhere mid of middle of next year. Uh, you yourself, uh, Bhushan, you mentioned uh, what is expected to be, you know, individual consumption of electricity uh, if we continue to grow at seven percent. And so that plus the fact that we're a signatory to the Paris Agreement, where we are actually committing to controlling emissions uh, and our reliance on fossil fuels, means India needs urgently. Uh, more and more renewable, more and more clean energy sources. Uh, and I think there's little doubt that nuclear is definitely or should definitely play a big part in that. Uh, Bushin, as always, uh, please share your Twitter handle for us. Okay, my Twitter handle is at BHS7ROCKS, R-O-C-K-S. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Bushin. Mm-hmm.